Hi, I'm Justine Harcourt de Tourville, and I'm here at the VR Lounge here at the Potsdamer Platz in Berlin, and I am speaking with Max Solomon, who is an executive producer with Black Dot Films VR. And welcome. Thanks. Hi. I'm, I'm thrilled to have you here because you do a lot of work for National Geographic. That's right. In yeah. fact, I think you've done not just a few. We've done over 40 VR films with them. I think in total, our films have been seen by close to 250 million people. Uh, it's sort of an incredible reach. Um, you know, and it has sort of, a, it, it goes back to the origins of how, of that moment in time when we started working with them. Um, but yeah, I'm incredibly privileged to work with, with a brand like that. So what happened? Did, did Nat Geo just call you up one day and say, hey, how about making some VR? Or how did this transpire? All of us at Black Dot are, are originally from National Geographic. Um, it's sort of a, a crucible for, for a lot of us. Um, I was uh, part of a team that ran National Geographic's flagship documentary series, which was this, we did about 21 hours of documentary a year about anything that would fit under the National Geographic brand inside that yellow rectangle. So anything from going to Guantanamo Bay to, um, to, the, to the prisons there, to archaeological discoveries, to you know, anything that you can really imagine. And it's incredibly privileged uh, access that you get to have to some of the best stories in the world. Um, and, and, you know, with, 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 with that brand attached. Um, and uh, my partner in the company, Malvina Martin, she ran development for National Geographic Television at the time, um, you know, creating the, the, the ideas that, that drove the series, the content, right, of what, what stories will work for National Geographic in, in television. And so, uh, in about 2011, we, we both ended up, 2011 and 12, we, we ended up leaving the company. Um, it was at the, at the same moment that National Geographic sort of turned towards um, a lot of reality programming. And for a pretty selfish reason, that's, it's, not interesting, it's not as interesting for us as producers to, to make 21 episodes of, this, of a similar story, as opposed to making the luxury of, of really this, this high end every hour you do is a different story that you get to dive into, you know, and immerse yourself in. So uh, we started to look at what, what, what's the, the challenge that we want to take on. When I saw the early sort of Oculus dev kits come out and started starting to see the potential and what that could do and, and, and early 360 video, I said, this is something. I, I had this moment where I saw the potential of VR and said, okay, this can start to get at the power of, of what I experienced for myself that I can never translate in television. And so I took the headset, you know, enthusiastic guy that I am and brought it to National Geographic and, and, and showed it to everyone that I knew and said, this, there's never been an alignment between a technology and, and this brand, you know, since the invention of the photograph, we all remember that moment when we unfold that, that magazine image that, you know, has the three foldouts and we fall through the picture. Well, this does that, right? And, of course, all my former colleagues sort of looked at me and said, wow, this is amazing, Max, but, you know, we're in, we're in the business of running a print magazine or, or, or making television shows and, you know, how do we monetize this? And the nice, friendly pat on the back and I've got to go, go back to work. Um, and then at Christmas in 2015, I got a phone call from a former colleague who said, um, I know you've been coming around telling us about VR and, and such. Um, something just landed on my desk. I don't even know. We just went through a reorg how this happened. But we've sold VR to Facebook. We've done a deal with them. And can you help us? Can you help us you know, fulfill this obligation that we have? I said, when's the first one due? What, how much? When, you know, he says, well, we have to make 24 films over the next year and the first one's due on January 1st. And I said, that's, 
next week. That's next week. <laughs> so we adjusted things a little bit and, 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 you know, but started to roll out the content. And it was the launch of 360 video on Facebook. Right now, it's not in headset necessarily. That's not where the largest part of the audience is. But National Geographic has a following of about 70 million people on Facebook, um, which is a huge audience. And it was really interesting. The first couple pieces that come out, suddenly the, the, the comment streams were hysterical to, to look at because suddenly people realize that they're somehow controlling the camera and they don't know how they're doing it. Right? And, and, and they have this experience where they say, wait, the camera works really terrible. Then they realize they're the camera operator. Um, and it goes viral. All of a sudden, overnight, the, the first film that we released, I think, was seen by eight and a half million people inside of three days. Huge numbers. Um, the next one comes out two weeks later, same kind of numbers. And it just, it was like volcanoes going off in terms of, the, of, of national traffic social media. And so suddenly a lot more eyes were on, on what we were doing. One of the things that, you know, we, we had to tell, we had to fill this pipeline inside the National Geographic IP um, of that kind of brand, of that kind of quality of image, that kind of quality of storytelling. You know, uh, it's, I think one of the things that's distinguished our work as opposed to others is the, is, the, is the quality of the image. It has to ultimately, I think whenever you work with a brand, you have to fulfill the promise of that brand. And we all have a very strong sense of what National Geographic's promise to us is, right? It's storytelling. It's, it's high quality image. Um, you know, and those are things that are actually really hard in 360 video, right? Um, stories with a beginning, middle, and an end that, that, that matter, right? Um, it's, not, it, it's not just enough that you can turn around inside the image. It has to be more than that to fulfill the promise. The other really important thing I think that is important to realize about, about cinematic VR um, is that it's not the same as film. It's a distinctly different medium for which the rules and the grammar, if you will, don't yet exist. If you think about the early days of cinema, right, um, it took about 15 years from the invention of the movie camera and moving picture to getting to the grammar of it, right? The first thing that somebody showed actually on a moving camera was, was, was railroad track. They put the camera on the front of a train and filmed railroad track, and people thought the tr you know, that they were on a train. They actually built a theater that looked like, like a boxcar of a train, and they rode the train. I mean, this sounds really familiar when you think about early VR here. You know, a lot of these experiences are like roller coasters. That's train track, right? But it's not a story. It's not, it's not cinema. And you think about those early days of cinema and what it took to get to, you know, to get to Sergei Eisenstein, who sort of invents montage and editing, to get to Buster Keaton, who figures out how to tell a joke, to the grammar of what a close-up is, right? A lot of early cinema, everything is the same size. They, they shot it like theater, sort of everybody would, had to fit on the stage in a certain way. All of these inventions that we came along in the, in the, in the grammar of, of cinema to get to eventually Lawrence of Arabia and Star Wars and these things that we think of as cinema today, but that's a hundred years of, 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 of narrative innovation, right? And understanding the rhythm and pulse of that medium. When you talk to a documentary filmmaker, any filmmaker, right, their main tool, one of the main tools is editing. It's the rhythm. It creates drama. It creates performance. Um, in VR, that editing is left to the audience, right? So that means that it's sort of like telling a story with one or two hands tied behind your back. One of the big revelatory moments for us was actually came out of the partnership with Facebook. Um, Facebook is actually a big data company. They, they're not a content company. They're a data company. They collect information. And in our case, they were recording... 30 times a second where everyone that was watching our 360 degree spherical films where they were looking and so and, and, and turning that into heat maps so when 
people are looking all over the place and there's not there's no there's no build up happening as to where they're concentrating it's all sort of green dots all over the place but then suddenly you see concentrations happen where they turn red they sort of heat up and then you can sort of reverse engineer and say well why are people looking over there and what is it that's making them focus here um because once you understand that you can start to try to design that and once you have that design you have control over the medium and you can actually tell a story it's not just about the novelty of here's an image i can turn around in it i can you know that that's that's a technology that's not a story that's not that's not a media that's not a form so one of the things that we started to pull out of this out of this data was um where people are looking and if you think about that that's actually editing right in a film the editor is telling you where to look you're looking at the close up of person a the close up of person b the two shot the hands the reaction shot all of that grammar that's where you should look um in vr all of that is left over to the audience which is terrifying for the filmmaker because you've just lost control. Um but we figured out looking at this data to regain that control. And some of that is tied to um the fact that we're human and fundamental things about hardwired things in our brain. Um we're social creatures. As I'm sitting here with you, right? Um there's a sort of a social contract of behavior of what's polite and such and so we're looking at each other in the face. We're making eye contact. If I break that eye contact and I suddenly look behind you, you're going to say, "Well, why is what what's distracting Max?" and you'll turn around and look over there. So I can literally make you look somewhere. Um there are other things that are more subtle than that that have to do with um things that are more reptilian in our brain. Um something like the movement of the camera can literally um force you to look at a certain place in the theater in 60 degrees. If the camera's moving in one direction, um you're human, you don't want to fall. You like to look where you're going. You look left and right, but you'll end up focusing exactly in that sphere where I want you to look, which means that then I can when I then make the edit, I don't need to wait for the audience for 5 seconds to them to figure out where the point of interest is in the next shot. I've created it before the edit. Prepared them for that. And that means that I can speed up my storytelling. Uh, I can I can I don't have to wait constantly for people to figure out where they should be looking where the subject is. So one of the one of the key things as well is that power of the eye contact. Eye contact in VR functions totally differently than it does in cinema, right? Uh, when 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 I do an interview for television, right? I put myself as a producer or a director right next to the camera and I make eye contact with the person and make sure that they're looking at me and and that's a magical moment between me and them that doesn't translate to the camera. Right? I get to look that person in the eye. Um in VR um it's important to be seen because the audience is is no way say the audience is a character but they're more than that. They if you if you think about a social context for me it was high school nobody looks you in the eye you feel invisible right? I'm exaggerating. I wasn't really that kid in high school but um But we were all that kid. We were all that kid. kid. We all felt like we were that kid we were in high school. All that kid. But it's true in VR. If you're if you if you watch a, a VR film and nobody is looking you in the eye, it's strange. You already when you look down, you don't have a body, right? So you're sort of this phantom, this ghost effect. Um the eye contact makes something more real. One of the ones that really stands out is this one that we that we that we did with orangutans. Um unfortunately today because of palm oil plantations and such and deforestation, um orangutans Are, are 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 really one of those species that is being crushed at the moment and when the forests get torn down the mothers and the adults they're aggressive they end up getting killed um but the young ones are cute and they end up in the illegal pet trade you know it's it's a really kind of a tragic context so there's this NGO that that intervenes and, and tries to bring them back um 
brings them to a preserve and teaches them what it means to be an orangutan. And you can see it. I mean, they, you know, some of them are, are actually have a fear of heights. Um, they don't know what it means. They, they don't know what a tree is. Right? In some cases, they've never seen a tree before since the day that they were that their mother was killed, and they were plucked into this other world. So we we, we started to to try to figure out how do you film this? How do you tell this story? And um, every night they bring every day they bring them into the forest in a wheelbarrow, mm-hmm. uh, sort of like a school bus. Mm-hmm. We, we, we mounted our camera to the front of the wheelbarrow. And all of the little orangutans are curious about this thing that we've now put in this world, this shiny, expensive, fragile camera that they see their own little reflection in. It has a blinking red light on it. This is just, I, you know, they want to touch, they want to... But what's, what's amazing in VR is that they, they're all looking at the camera. When you see an orangutan touch the lens in a documentary film, you, your brain's, and you're sitting on your couch at home, you say, oh, too bad for the cameraman, he has slime on his lens. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's a passive experience. In VR, because you're actively looking down and left and right and figuring out that world for yourself, there is no edge to the frame. And when the orangutan reaches out and touches the lens, they're reaching out and touching you. When they look into the lens, they're looking and seeing you. And you're connecting with them. I showed... Uh, there's, there's one moment in the film, actually, where one of them, they're, they're loading them back in at the end of the day, and she realizes nobody's around her. She looks left and right, and, and suddenly she, she leans in and puts her lips on the lens. It's this magical moment when you see it in the film because she literally leans in and gives you a kiss. So I showed that to my, to my mother-in-law over Christmas and she, she was in, in, in tears, right? She had, she had been seen. He saw me, right? And people want to, you know, the next thing they would do is reach for their checkbook and, and want to know, how do I help? Right? And those are those kinds of moments that, that we can't tell in, in documentary film. We can only tell them in, in, in cinematic VR. Thank you so much, Max. That is... An incredible story. Very powerful. Appreciate it. Thanks.